spoken word. A taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Welcome to Spoken Word. My name is Tina Giannoukas. 3CR broadcasts from Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and future. Today on the program we have poet and reviewer Jennifer McKenzie. Jennifer has published two collections of poetry, Burubadua in 2009 with Transit Lounge and Navigable Inc. in 2020 also with Transit Lounge. Both collections are inspired by her long-term interest in Indonesia. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Jennifer, you've been in the poetry scene for a very long time. How did you begin your involvement in poetry? Well, I think, uh, Tina, and thanks for having me here, I think it began actually when I was in school because I began reading uh, and painting too, actually, when I was still in school. And a very important figure at school was the artist Les Cossatz. And I was very lucky to have him as a teacher. And I think he was quite an inspirational figure. And although I didn't continue with painting, I think art has been a really important thing about my poetry. But coming to actual poetry, I also had another bit of good fortune at Melbourne University. Vincent Buckley and Chris Wallace Crabbe were there as teachers when I was there, and I received a great deal of encouragement from them. It was fantastic. I believe you first published a poem in the student newspaper, Melbourne University, is that right? Yes, yes, it was a little journal, actually. And um, at that time, Vincent Buckley said to me, oh, well, this this seems to have some promise. (laughs) It could be just a flash in the pan, we don't know, but... That comment was really encouraging, I think, as people know when you're a young person and you're quite vulnerable and so on and you don't know if your work's any good. That was really encouraging. And so I went from there and continued writing. I imagine that those early years would have been quite formative, particularly in terms of your early work. You have published two collections of poetry, Borobudur in 2009, I believe, and uh, that was republished later as Borobudur and other poems in Indonesia. Yes. And you've also published Navigable Inc., and that was more recent in 2020. Both these collections deal with your relationship with Southeast Asia, and I'm very interested how that relationship for you began, given that I think your early poetry was much more contemporary poetry, much more involved with the social issues of the day. Would that be right? Yes, that's true, and um, I published quite a few poems, I suppose, in the style of a writer like Natalie Sorote. I like to do Uh, social poems that looked at the undercurrent of a conversation between people. Uh, That was a common thing, and a lot of personal poetry. But I think that changed significantly after I went to Indonesia, my first trip away uh, in 1975. Which is a very long time ago, and you've maintained and increased that interest in Asia and China too. You lived in China for a while, didn't you? Yes, yes, three years in Qingdao. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write your first collection, Borobudur, and uh, if you can tell us a little bit about what that collection is about. 
Yes, well, as a kind of background, when I first went to Indonesia, which, as I say, is 1975, uh, the impression made on me was quite extraordinary. And although I've travelled to other places since, uh, nothing has quite had the personal impact that that trip made. And especially when I went to Jogjakarta in Java, I felt strangely as if I'd been there before. It was a kind of very strong sensation that I've never experienced otherwise. And as I travelled about Java, I felt a, a strong artistic affinity to the culture, to the people. It was very strong, and, and I visited Borobudur on that visit. And can you tell us a little bit about Borobudur, the monument? I personally haven't seen Borobudur, but I understand it's quite an extraordinary monument. Yes, it was built uh, during the 8th to 9th century by the Sayendra dynasty, and that was a Hindu-Buddhist, uh, sorry, a, a Buddhist dynasty. At that time, there were Hindu and Buddhist kingdoms. And so the Sayendra uh, dynasty was the one who commissioned and built Borobudur over, they think, about an 80-year period. What was it about Borobudur that so inspired you that you went on to write a collection of poetry about it? Well, I think there's many complexities involved in that. I think... For a start, it was the beauty of the place. I think anyone who visits would be quite touched by its structure, the surrounding landscape. It has a very strong, powerful feeling about it. Would um, you like to read us a poem for Borobudur that speaks to that very strong sentiment? Yes, I can read. This is from later in the collection. It's called Working the Stone. And uh, my protagonist in uh, Borobudur is the architect Gunavarman, as I've called him. In actual fact, his name was Gunadama, but uh, my character is fictional. So in this place, it's his voice, working the stone. Working the stone, stone idly lying on the river bank, catching the beauteous form at the moment when it is that particular shape. Moment of holding, that imperceptible breach between being and becoming, rock being of transformation, its loose soil scatters like crumbs of grain, damp underside thick with lichen, its blank face taken into the arms of my master craftsman, who traces upon it an exquisite troupe of veiled dancers. Set into place on a motley foundation, its subject faces the vacant air. Rainwater plunges over the dancers' faces in an elemental grief. Exquisite. When you wrote Borobudur, it's such a complex book. I imagine you must have done quite a lot of research for it. Yes, huge amounts. One of the reasons I chose the topic, other than what I've already mentioned, is that I had a couple of travelling scholarships and so I travelled about Indonesia. And initially I was writing poems about what I was seeing, basically. And I became quite dissatisfied with that and I thought, I need to know more about this place. And I think the choice of Borobudur and that thought came together, and so I embarked upon finding out more about it, and the world as well in which it was created, the entire Asian world. 
one of the great things about doing this was research was looking and seeing what Asia was like at that time. The travel that people did, the movement of peoples, the cultural influences, the dynamics of it, absolutely fascinating. I so. believe through uh, Borobudur, you've gone on to establish a very strong relationships with Indonesian poets and you've gone on to write your second collection, Navigable Ink, which was published, as I mentioned earlier, in 2020, which also deals with Indonesia. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that book? Yes. Well, it's interesting I su- that um, Borobudur was more or less done, I suppose, through my own travels and research. But Navigable Ink is a little different because it does speak, in a way, to many of the connections that I've made through Indonesia and Asia as well. And it's almost a kind of homage to many people who I've met or have helped me in some way, have been influential. So initially, uh, with the publication of Borobudur, I went to the Ubud Writers Festival and I met a number of people there. For example, the late sadly late, Jamie James, who introduced me to uh, John McGlynn of the Lontar Foundation, and the Lontar Foundation subsequently republished that book. And that was the beginning, I think, of um, extending that connection. All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers and all. So it went Welcome back. You're listening to Spoken Word 3CR. I'm Tina Giannoukas and I'm talking with Jennifer McKenzie. Would you like to read a poem from Navigable Inc. for us? This book is a homage to the writer Pramudia Anantatur and I was very fortunate to receive a manuscript of his called Aris Barlik or Cross Currents and to translate and work on for a master's. And so this poem I'll read is in two sections and it's based on a documentary featuring him and I think it's necessary to mention that Pramudia Anantatur was imprisoned three times actually in his life but most significantly under Suharto and he was imprisoned on Buru Island and from I think from 65 to 79 I think there was initial imprisonment elsewhere, but it was very difficult conditions. He had no paper, pen and paper for many years. So the poems I'll read are based on his... In the 90s, he was placed under house arrest in Jakarta, and one of his problems was that he found it very difficult to write after going through such a traumatic experience. And uh, so I'll read these poems. The first one is Writer's Block, Typewriter, 1995. Slow click, 
The day passes slowly. A session of push-ups, cleaning the yard, making tea. Click, click, click. Writer's block. 1965. One, library ransacked. Two, hysteria of flags. Three, discourse a burning tire. Four, imprisonment to the east. Now, Jalan Raya Pos, winding through Chanju's tea-growing district, so green, the sun so drenching, it's near to yellow. Women under large hats, plucking buds, filling the cane baskets on their backs. VIP entourage, sirens blaring, from the fields a soft chorus of cackling. Writer's block, rain soaking, a breakdown, diesel fumes rising like clouds, a rinse in the river of spare parts. The bus will rattle into life, eventually, writer's block. And the second part is Dendel's this wying puppet watching over us. And in this poem, there's quite a reference to Pramudia's essay, which is used in the documentary, looking at the Jalan Raya Pos, which is the Great Post Road. It was a road constructed under the Dutch in the early 19th century. So the essay is looking at that road as a kind of metaphor, I suppose, of Indonesian history. So Dendels, the Governor-General at the time, Dendels as Wang Puppet watching over us. If I don't feel safe, I won't leave the house. The hooded eyes see inward. Jalan Raya Pos, Governor-General Dendels. Accidents, exhaustion, fatigue, hunger, miasma from the marshes, many deaths along this ribbon of road. It was a miserable short trip by bicycle, 1.5 kilometres to a friend's place, 14 years old. The Japanese came to shore, aided by the colonial atlas at Lazen. Spades, sodden, flooded, collecting sand, this rushing river, stoking the furnace at the sugar mill, from one end of the road to the other, limber bodies scale the scaffolding. Under a shelter, rain pouring down day after day, distant hills a smudge of green, through the rain curtain a friend brings us coffee, guitar in smoky orange light from the lamps, clove-scented clouds. Oh, Masina, how tragic was your fate? Where was respect for those who speak up, each for his own look to Masina? On the road, a mudslide, on a high peak, gleaners, brutalised, robbed, cheated of livelihood, watched for eternity, new order, their hearts and heads are no mystery. Wyang performance, the puppets of Dendals, the regent of Sumadang, are cracking gamelan, battle it out. 
a sultry, fuel-heavy night here under the stars. Approaching the end, Jalanraya Pos, Panarukan shady streets. Click, click, click. I have never set foot in Panarukan. One feels strongly the sense of the landscape as you read that poem. Can you tell us a little bit about the way you went about writing Navigable Ink? Yes, well, it began with some of the sections of Aris Balik uh, by Pramudia. I'd had it on my mind for a while to do something about Pramudia and uh, some friends I'd talked to about, oh, could I do a biography or something? They're saying, oh, no. And then a good friend, fellow poet, said, oh, you know, why not look at the work you've done on Aris Balik? And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I, I went back to that, and that was the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yes. It's a very interesting historical novel. At the time when I received it, which was about 1993, Pramudia was still it was in house arrest. His books were banned. And I think it's interesting to note that, like other writers who in Indonesia who had a similar experience, they relied on overseas contacts to get their work out there. And I was lucky through other channels to get this manuscript. And so I did some of my own versions of, of some of the chapters in Aris Balik, which is set at the time of the arrival of the Portuguese in the early 16th century in Southeast Asia. So what is fascinating about this book is that it gives an account of people there who were experiencing this uh, beginning of colonisation. So that was a fantastic kind of opening. And so it gave me the opportunity to present this book from the point of view of Indonesia. It was a, a strategic decision not to have any voices other than Indonesian ones in Navigable Ink. With that, between Borobudur and Navigable Ink, of course, you've spent quite a bit of time in Indonesia, haven't you? So you've become fairly familiar with the culture. I, yes, you, well, I try to be. It's an ongoing connection. I do love the dance, but in particular the music, and I make a, a concerted effort to be reading Indonesian literature as much as I can. And um, there are some, there's some absolutely wonderful writers. That one, for example, I'm reading is uh, Nukila Amal. I'm also reading about to read um, Putu Oka Sukanta, a similar story to Pramudia's, and that he was imprisoned for many years. So I do connect as much as I can at a distance. But I I must say I'm really looking forward to hearing some Balinese gamelan when I get back later on this year. When was the last time you were in Indonesia? I haven't been since uh, 2017. I went there for a conference of Asia-Pacific writers and translators and then to the Ubud Festival. I'm looking forward to returning there this year. What I find fascinating about both uh, collections, Borobudur and Navigable Inc., is the poetics. Reading those collections, I notice you range from the prose poem to a list poem to the lyrical to the narrative. Can you expand on that as to 
your choice of uh, poetics and uh, what informed those choices? Well, I think I'm very much a, kind of a follower of modernism. I think Ezra Pound, um, Gary Snyder, for example, are poets that have um, resonated with me. And I think the possibility that modernism offers in terms of form and um, could be list-making, as, as you mentioned, I think there are poets that I return to all the time, so Pound, Snyder, Wallace Stevens, and also poets like uh, Lorca and Paul Salan. Those poets are really important and they're writers I read again and again. But I'm also very influenced by prose. So, for example, a really huge influence on my work is the novels and essays of Marguerite Yorsenar. Fabulous writer. Oh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And I felt that I almost found my voice (laughs) reading Yorsenar. So I don't think I could underestimate how important her work has been. And so I think because I do read prose as well, and of course I read many contemporary poets. One of the poems in Borobudur that I would love you to read for us, if you wouldn't mind, is the poem on page, uh, page 26, which I, I just find, find lovely to uh, read and would love to hear it read in your voice. Yes. Yes, and, and this poem, Samara Tunga, it, um, it does look at the, at the kind of journey and travelling that, that Gunavarman is doing on his way to actually constructing Borobudur. So, Samara Tunga. It is 20 years since I was last in the presence of a Sayendra. Samara Tunga lived in an open-aired pavilion, his presence hidden from his subjects, by heavy cloths drawn about the sparely carved pillars. Flowering vines festooned over the rafters, a small courtyard planted with jasmine, the odd plot of bamboo. For the glory of the Buddha and for the glory of the Sayendras, he said, lifting his sketches out of the parcel of silk. A mighty meru of my imagination, a mighty stupor of dimensions to confound you, you miniaturist carver of small shrines. Unravelling sketch after sketch, a man-made rock-faced hemisphere. He wanted me to carve, but I was on fire. A thousand possible reconstructions of his clumsy images came to mind. He drew a soft moon gaze slowly down over his anger, his shuttered eyes half-opened, a blaze of ancient jewels. Go to Nalanda, stay at least ten years. Go to Sanchi and follow the carving of the great monks. Go to Alora, thrive among the artisans of the Mahayana. Come back with your hands, trembling with wonder and expertise. I was transfixed in a pale jade lake of emotion, but this substance resembling water was on fire, hot as the fire in which the smiths submerged the chris. My hands took the parcel. Fortunately, my years at court displayed that I was all grace. My eyes, lips, expression, motionless. In keeping with the deity, Samaratunga offered gold, new robes, I left him, 
went out into the air blue with longing and wet. Trek through forest, a salt merchant's boat to the port, languished happily for a month in the Moorish quarter to China. Thank you. That was uh, beautiful. One of the things I love about that poem is its exquisite uh, recreation of a very rich world, centrally rich world, and that sensuality you create in both Borobudur and Navigable Inc. Would you like to read a short poem from Navigable Inc. and we can go out on that poem? Sure. I'll read one that comes from Aris Barlick, actually. It's called The Messenger. His gold necklace and bracelet glittering under stars. His horse gleaming black in a night seeming to reach to eternity. Rode along the ribbon of shoreline, anxious and ready to hear from the solitary boat, moored at the dock straight ahead. He was surprised by the cold, under a rising full moon, a breeze dancing off the waves embracing him. Possessing a rich imagination, he compared it to the ironic action of a lover, a dismissive wave chilling the bones. Dismounting and through the gate to a yard covered in lawn with floral borders, well into the night, lamps flickered in the pendopo. Why have you brought the cold? drawled the Adipati. After much obeisance, Japara has fallen, our troops retreated, Damak has been occupied by three thousand men. His protector, looking as wild as the Shiramafuni, hissed in disbelief. A rush of soldiers, you, sir, are detained. He sits quietly in the pendopo for some time, rises slowly, stroking his beard. The messenger also, in his rude quarters, a guard at the gate, sits quietly, terrified, outraged, with a beating heart. Thank you for that lovely poem, Jennifer. Where can listeners get Borobudur and uh, Navigable Inc? Well, Navigable Inc is still available in bookshops such as uh, Readings, but you can order both of them direct through the publisher, Transit Lounge. Thank you for coming along to the show, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you very much, Tina. And you have been listening to 3CR Spoken Word. Tune in every Thursday at 9am.